All right. Uh, so I'm going to read in uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. And there are just a few verses, and we don't have a lot of time. We wasted a lot of time. Just kidding. We didn't waste it. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> I did spend a lot of time jibber-jabbering. Of course, I was talking about spiritual matters, too. But anyway, we're going to read in uh, Matthew 18, verse 15 through 20. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything, that they may ask, and it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Okay. Just a few verses here, but there is, there's a lot of detail and a lot of confusion about this passage. And so I didn't want to take on too much and just kind of bebop and skip all over it. Um, but I, as we look at this, I want to under, want us to remember that context is very, very important. Okay, and I know you've probably heard this passage quoted many, many times. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in their midst. Um, and it's used in a way that is actually not in, it's not consistent with the context, in my humble opinion. Um, so, I wanted the blue, actually the gray, uh, recap for context section. Are things that we've, uh, I took it back from Mark, I think. I've got it up here. Um, so here's the recap uh, of this whole, this is just one conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And it's a deep, meaningful conversation that started from Jesus' example of not paying temple tax. Remember, he's the son of God, but he went ahead and paid the temple tax by the coin in the fish's mouth so as not to offend anyone. The Son of God could have gone to the temple of God for free because sons are free, um, others are not. Uh, so this is in context of Jesus demonstrating humility. Uh, and then he calls the child up to the middle of the, the men. And he, the child having nothing to offer anybody, and that's obvious, he's a child, we're men. Um, but he does have humility. He's modeling humility. He knows that he's not bringing anything of value to this group of men that he's in the middle of. Okay? Uh, and he doesn't presume to have anything to add to that. And then Jesus begins to talk about, in that context, sin against a new believer, being one of the children who believe in him, or little ones. So sinning against a new believer, not just a young person or a young kid, but it's a new believer. And it's the warning not to cause any of those new believers who believe to stumble. Uh, two, he talks about people who cause other people to sin, um, it's inevitable that sin is going to come into the world, but woe to the person through whom it comes. Um, and there's a woe about the stumbling blocks. And then there's three, self-induced sin. We just bring it on ourselves. There are sins we like to do, and so Jesus is warning us about that. Uh, instruction for the things in your own life that cause you to stumble. Self-induced sin. Um, and then the, he talks about... Um, not despising or looking down on or treating with contempt those little ones or the new believers, okay? 
the ones that you presume not to have anything of value to offer. And I think that's just a partial thing, okay? I mentioned before about humility. And the humility is there because the child understands that I have nothing to offer these people. I think there's an an aspect of that when we interact with other people in the church specifically for this, and we don't think that they have anything to offer. So we look down on them. We treat them with contempt. I'm not going to spend time with you and invest in your life because what do I get out of it? Um, and I've, so for now let's just go to that part and then Jesus gives this example about uh, seeking, leaving the 99 and seeking the 1 so this is how Jesus is bringing together all of these things about sin a very very important instruction about humility and sin and he goes back to humility don't despise them uh, and the purpose why or why would we not despise them why is it important for us to deal with sin uh, it's because God loves all of his sheep, not just some. Okay? So leaving the 99 isn't about evangelism. I know it's often used that way, but in this context, Jesus is not talking about evangelism. He's talking about sheep. His fold. They're, they're his fold, yeah. <clears throat> and so does that change the way we often think about things? Um, you don't have to answer this, but just think about it, how in church life... Um, do we value each and every member the way God values them? And think about how we do church. When a person wants to become a member of our church, they meet with the elders um, and they give their testimony about how they came to faith in Christ. And so the elders uh, hear that and they say, you know what, that does sound like a, a salvific experience. We believe based on your testimony about your experience and we believe based on the fruit that we see you look like you're being faithful to Christ. There, there are no outstanding sins that you're harboring. And so based on that, we believe that you are indeed saved. And so sure, yeah, you can join our fellowship, our fold. You're, we think you're one of the sheep. Um, and so when they become part of the, the congregation, uh, do we reckon each of, those, each of the people in the congregation uh, equally? Because the demonstration that we have in Scripture is that God loves every single one of his sheep. And if a person is a member, he's one of us, he's, he's one who believes in Christ, are we valuing each individual member the exact same way that God values them in our determination? Like we've determined, yeah, they look like they're saved, and so God must have saved them. They're one of his sheep. Do we, are we thinking the same way that God is thinking about that person? Does that make sense? And so for me, that's hard because I'm naturally partial to people. Sounds impossible. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't mean that you are equally close to everybody. But it's a demonstration of love. And, and um, I don't get my feelings hurt about this, but some other people do. Some people like to have many, many, many friends very superficially. I don't really care. Mm-hmm. I just, <laughs> one or two or three are fine with me. Um, and it's not that I'm mean or hateful or anything, and I'm not trying to exclude anybody. It's just you, know, you only share with a few people. And think about what Jesus did. He had 12 disciples, uh, more followers, basically, 12 disciples. But the only, he always called for three to come with him to go pray, right? And it doesn't mean that Jesus 
didn't love the other ones just as much. And I mean, we have a clear demonstration of Jesus's love for even the likes of us, and we weren't even there two thousand years ago. Um, it's just, I think it's a, it's just a natural thing. But do we do we love everybody? The context of loving is your brother. Yeah, yeah. We want what is best for that person. We don't want them to harbor sin. I don't want to sin against you. And so that's going to be the overriding thing in my life. Okay, so in this passage leading up to what we just read, that's the context. Jesus talks a lot about sin. He talks about the uh, equality of God's love and his pursuit of all of his people. He loves all of his sheep. He wants to keep all of his sheep, and he will keep all of his sheep. Um, And Jesus didn't exercise his right as the Son of God because he didn't want to offend Others give the wrong impression that he was uncaring or inconsiderate. I love the word considerate. I teach my kids that all the time. Mm -hmm. It's a really important word. I wish everybody in the world knew it and followed uh, being considerate of others. Uh, But anyway, that's another thing. So. Uh, I'm sorry, I had a question while we were talking about that you were talking about believer's sin. About what sin? I'm sorry. A believer's sin. Yeah. When it says binding and loosing in heaven, Mm -hmm. what does that mean? We're going to get to that. Okay. Yeah, we'll get to that. Uh, and actually, so yeah, we'll get to it. But right now we're at uh, Roman numeral one. And so why not? God loves all of his sheep, not just some. Number one, but what if a believer or a sheep sins against me? And those are the first couple of verses that we read. If he sins against you, Jesus says, reprove him. Um, again, it's a brother sinning against you or a sister, it doesn't matter. A uh, fellow believer, um, you're to reprove them. Now, when Luke records this passage, he uses a different Greek word. Um, Matthew uses uh, elekko. Uh, it means bring to light, expose, set forth, convict, convince, reprove. That's a softer approach to this person. Uh, Luke, when he shares this passage, he says rebuke. I mean, rebuke, <laughs> reprove, <laughs> rebuke. <laughs> that is gross. <laughs> I just threw up twice. <laughs> it's nasty. <laughs> rebuke, reprove, censure, speak seriously, warn, or punish. That's, that's harder uh, and harsher. Why do you think Matthew used a different word than Luke in this? Different perception, maybe? What do you mean? I don't know. Some people like a lot of friends. Some people like a few friends. Um, maybe he, he saw it as uh, more of a harsh uh, thing to do is to from your brother and try to restore him. And maybe it's a little more, not important, but more serious. And maybe Luke saw it as more of a soft, you know, kind of come together too. Well, Matthew uses the, the softer word. Oh, Luke sorry. uses the hard. That's, that's fine. Matthew came from being a tax collector and was despised and hated and regarded as a sinner. And Jesus said, the one who's forgiven the most has the most reason to love. That's interesting. What's the context? Yeah. I mean, are they both talking about the Matthew 18, a brother sins against you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's or the same. Is it here that he's doing increasingly more uh, extreme uh, discussions, I guess? First, you just go to them and beat them, and then next, you're going to bring another person with you. So Matthew does provide more detail in that. And Luke seems to have a real short section that he talks about all this. It's bam, 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 bam. 
Luke uh, wasn't an eyewitness of this. He gathered information. He was a doctor. Um, and so think about it from Luke's perspective for a second. What has been the overriding theme? Not the overriding theme, but many, many words. What has been the warning in all these sections that Jesus has given about what? About sin, right? Sin. Okay, so Luke, being a doctor, he just wants to cut that right out. That's my guess. Like, Luke wasn't there. He took the thing. Okay, great. We need to get rid of the sin. And here's the other thing we're going to do. We're just going to nip it in the bud. Just get rid of it. So what context is Matthew coming from? He, he spends a lot more time with this conversation about Jesus' demonstration of humility, the significance of sin that needs to be dealt with, um, and then we're here with practical information or practical instruction about how to deal with this terrible thing of sin. All the while, not despising the new believer. So does it make sense that Matthew would approach it differently than Luke? So what is Matthew doing if he's using a softer word here for expose, set forth, convict, convince, reprove? focusing on discipleship and uh, restoration yeah, yeah, I agree. Because it would it would be weird if in this context of Jesus was really harsh with his words about dealing with sin. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. But when he's talking about the believers, God loves every single one. This he wants to keep all of them. He's going to keep all of them. Don't despise the new believers. Don't cause them to stumble. And so when you approach them, you're right. You're doing it that way. With I want to restore you. I want to bring you into the fold. Um, I want you to grow to look like Christ. That's my motive. <clears throat> Not just cutting out the bad parts. I like that word you just used, restoration. Mm-hmm. Instead of coming up there and, and throwing it in somebody's face and bringing them to shame. Yeah. To convict them to return to you. Yeah. Can we back up a second? Um, brother sinning against brother. What exactly is that? Because like when David killed Uriah, I think it was in Psalm 51, he said, talking to God, you alone have I sinned. And so, like, when it's talking about this, what, I mean, when a brother sins against a brother, like, what is, is that just a, an offense? Is that a theft? Is that murder? Is that, I mean, what, No, it's, anything? okay, so when David talks about that, um, I know he says, against you and you only have I sinned. That's the monumental sin. Ultimately, all sin comes down to not reckoning God to be God. Romans chapter 1. They did not honor God as God. And so when you commit murder, what David did, not only murdering his brother, uh, committing adultery, all those things, those those are symptoms of, of the root sin. It all boils down to you did not honor God as God. And so, yeah... So David did sin against Uriah. He did sin against Bathsheba. He did sin against the authority of his his position against all of Israel. Yeah, absolutely. Those are symptoms of a greater problem. He sinned against God. Yeah. So here you could say brother sinned against brother. Yeah, uh, it is against the brother, but ultimately it is against God. But we have real practical ways that we need to work that out. If we've got a problem, we're sinning against God. It manifests in ways here so yeah um okay if he hears you any more questions about that comment if he hears you you have won uh, a brother uh 
But if he doesn't listen to you, take it to one or more, take one or two more with you. Um, the idea of one or gained, the word used for one or gained, does anybody have something different? The verse, is this one? verse 15, the last part, it says, you have won your brother in mind. Gained. gained. What version is that? ESV. ESV. Um, I, I technically like gained better in this situation, so I like NASB, but ESV, actually, I like that better. Um, so does that echo anything that Jesus has recently said? If he listens, you have gained your brother. Think about the lost sheep. Mm-hmm. Jesus, he just talked about leaving the 99 and going and gaining, finding, winning your lost brother. So he's talking about here... Here's how you solve the problem. We're talking about sin and offenses coming, and this is so practically how you deal with that. Do this. If you listen, you gained, you found the lost sheep. If he doesn't listen, here's what else you do: um, bring supporting parties with you, and uh, supporting parties uh, help determine misunderstanding whether the two parties are misunderstanding one another, or if it is actually something serious. And Deuteronomy 19:15, I think I have that in your notes. Uh, it says a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any inquiry or any sin which he has committed on the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter shall be confirmed and so there are practical ways you take look I could be misunderstanding he didn't listen to me I was trying to encourage him to repent of this will you come with me and talk with this person and see if I'm wrong if I'm wrong I'll confess repent ask for forgiveness and if he's wrong he needs to repent of this, we want him to do that. We want him to be rest- to be restored. Um, if he listens, great. If not, uh, verse seventeen. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Um, it could be translated, "Tell it in the church." Like I don't think it's practical to have the whole church go and knock on that person's door. Yeah, <laughs> right. Oh, joy. Yeah. So telling it to the church in the congregation or however however you wanted to do that, but the church needs to be involved at that point. Um, right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's not the first line of defense. Yeah. Um, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, uh, the church has a primary or uh, the significant uh, responsibility to implement discipline. Okay. So if the church hears it and they say you need to repent, the person still doesn't repent, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Who wrote this gospel? Matthew. And he was a he was a tax collector. So isn't that weird? (laughs) I can just imagine Matthew writing this. I was like, (laughs) gosh. I've got to tell you. Um, so the question is, it says um, uh, two or more witnesses, two or three witnesses, do they have to actually witness the sin, or do they become witnesses once you reveal the sin to them? Uh, that. Okay. Uh, but there is a, an aspect in which it seems if they don't... Yeah. Um, two or three. There's an aspect in which this sin, uh, if left unchecked, they could already know about it <coughs> before this, or... Uh, it will become known if it's not dealt with now secretly. Yeah. And so even in this, there's still a, a respect of the person <laughs> wanting to, not wanting to 
to wear them down and beat them down and make them a public spectacle. Mm-hmm. Like, because remember, we're talking about restoring and keeping the sheep. And if you make it a public spectacle at first, then the reputation of that person when they walk down the halls at church and media, people are going to have that in the back of their mind. And you too for spreading someone's you know, vulnerability to sin. Right. And That's what my we, question was. It's like, it, do we need to go tell people, hey, this person sinned against me. I need you to come and help me bash their head in and tell them that they're wrong. Yeah, no, and we're still not to that point okay. here, and we don't get to that point. <laughs> we'll bash their heads later. No, no I was just joking. Uh, it's done with love and care and respect for the integrity of the person uh, and the reputation of the person. Because having a person as a member of your body with a bad reputation doesn't help anybody. Exactly. Like It doesn't help the body at all to say, hey, we've got this member who does this sin, and or they did this sin, and I still haven't forgotten about it because that's how I've marked them in my mind. Mm-hmm. So there's some confidentiality there. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, there's a fine line between you know, gossiping and speaking There you go. It's really Um, so as official church discipline that would be the phase but how what does that look like and I have in your notes I think I do Matthew eleven nineteen. Jesus is called a friend of tax collectors and sinners or Gentiles mm-hmm. okay so it's not that we pretend they don't exist um, but we treat them as if they were not a member of, of the church like we can't say we believe you're saved now like we can't confirm that anymore because you are not repentant. It doesn't mean we are mean to them. Like we're we're still to love our enemies, and so we don't treat that person any worse than we would a person who's not a believer. Um, and the purpose, um, I th- do I have that in your notes? The different verses, like Matthew five forty three through forty eight. Mm-hmm. Okay. The bottom forty six through forty seven and six seven, but not eleven nineteen. Okay. Uh, the person's treated as an outsider, but not with the idea of permanence. We want them to repent after withholding fellowship. Like, we can't fellowship with them as a believer. Um, and we can't really get into that right now because I know we're late. You want to finish this up or you want to go? I'm probably not going to be here next week. I'll talk quickly. Uh, it is loving to withhold fellowship if giving fellowship implies that clinging to a sin is okay. So how is it loving to treat a person as a tax collector and a Gentile? In other words, they're a non-repentant sinner. I, I care for you. You know, I was given grace. I didn't deserve it, yet God extended grace to me. And so there's perhaps, as long as you draw breath, you could repent and believe on Christ as well. That's how we treat them. It's loving to treat them uh, with truth and how they actually are perceived before God if they're non-repentant. Um, it's not loving to say, you know what, you sin, it's cool. We'll all sin, you just stay here, and we don't really need to repent. That's not a loving thing to do. Um, my kids ask me sometimes, um, I do spank my kids, uh, but only after I've told them X number of times, if I were you, I would do this. Um, I need you to do this because it's the right thing to do. You need to honor your parents. Um, you need to be considerate of others. And if they still refuse to listen to me over and over and over again, I spank. 
I don't like to. I don't want to. I just want to enjoy everybody and have fun and have rainbow unicorns. <laughs> but, and they ask me sometimes, Dad, why do you spank us if you don't like to do it? I said, well, because I love you. I love you too much to allow you to persist in your bad behavior because if it doesn't affect you now, it will affect you later. You're going to think that that's how life works. No one's going to like you. Uh, and ultimately, I want you to understand when God says something, he's God and he means it. And so you need to honor him and take heed his warnings. Uh, and so I love you, and that's why I do that. You discipline so they don't go out there and get in trouble and can't protect them. Exactly. So in church discipline, it's the same kind of kind of deal. We do it not because it's fun and we want to do it. We do it because it's loving. Mm-hmm. We need to. We want you to repent, and until you do, you're going to be under this discipline. Okay, binding and loosing, verses 18 through 20. Um, this goes back to we covered this in Matthew chapter 16, um, when uh, Jesus said, "You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I will give you the keys to." Um, the life in Hades, um, and what you bind on earth will be bound, and what you loose will be loosed. Uh, it's the same thing here. Matthew is repeating it, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing this kind of thing again. But in this context, he's talking about um, the church, not just Peter, but the church. And it has to do with the regulation of behavior. Uh, the rabbis used to say um, binding and loosing to talk about what was pro- prohibited, behavior and what was permitted behavior and so this phrasing was common in jewish life the rabbis would instruct the people it's okay to do this it's not okay to do this Um, and so that's the idea and so as we're talking about church discipline which is what this context is um, the church uh, leadership and body inspired or filled with the holy spirit led by the holy spirit um and you know, reading God's word and, and saturated in the, a healthy church um, can make decisions like this that are consistent with what God has decreed. Does that make sense? So binding and loosing has to do with what's permitted and what is not permitted as far as behavior goes. And so that makes sense, right? If we're talking about your brother sinning against you, well, it's not a big deal. It's not a big sin. Well, the church ultimately says, yes, it is a big deal. Uh, God has said this. We agree with God. Um, so the church is able to prohibit and command behavior that is backed by God. Now, when it says, uh, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven, it's not that we, the tail is wagging the dog, if you will. Um, it's not that we are telling God what to do and setting things right. It says, shall have been. It's already a done deal. God has already decreed certain behavior to be right and certain behavior to be wrong. And so when the church... Uh, implements this discipline, whatever you bind on earth, don't do that. Um, it's consistent with what God has already decreed. And so, of course, God backs that because he's the one that decreed it. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, it's not that we are enforcing our will upon God. It's we are being consistent with what, what God has already decreed. It was confusing to me because it sounded like Catholic dogma, mm-hmm. like an excommunication yeah. to take them away from the sacrament. Well, it kind of is. Well, we do that... Uh, so well, I'm at, I'm at a, uh, an eternal level. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, uh, it's so when a person is made a member of the church, then um, we are confirming yes, we believe you're saved based on the fruit that you exhibit and your testimony that you know Christ. If you are not repentant, as a church body, we can't say for sure that you're saved anymore. 
Like you're not exhibiting that fruit, and so you are not a part of the body of Christ. You can still come and listen to preaching. You can still do all that stuff, but we don't believe that you're saved. Like we can't say that. Like the only way we know anybody is saved is if they exhibit the fruit of salvation, and repentance is one of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it it's not exactly like the Catholic Church does, because they have different views on the sacraments, right? And how you earn salvation. That, that's, I think that's what I was trying to get at. Was, okay. was they have they don't give a process to bringing the person back in once once it's done, it's just done. As far as I understand oh. it, They're like there's no coming back from that. Yeah, I don't know. But on our uh, on our side, uh, salvation is all of the Lord, and we see the fruit of it. Uh, John chapter three: the wind blows where it wants to, and you don't know where it goes, where it comes from. Yep. Sorry. This is talking about if a brother sins against a brother, what about those sins that don't affect a brother that are like, you know, gambling addiction or obesity or you know something that doesn't. That's not a sin against a brother, but that is still not permissible according to Scripture. Does Matthew 18 this passage just not pertain to that, or does it? No, I don't think there. Elders? I don't think there are any sins that don't affect other people. Yeah, I was going to say whoever offends the Lord should offend the church, right? Right, and that's why I didn't quote quotation, but this is specifically yeah, against sins against a brother. Um, it's not self sins if that was still on the same level. Uh, so, it's interesting how you approach your brother like that. Exactly. I think you can still, the way Paul, uh, not Paul, Matthew does it, says it with admonition, convince, you know, hey man, you've got these things going on. Maybe, is that the best thing to start with those as well? So yeah, okay, you're right that this is sins against a brother. It doesn't stop there. Like every passage in Scripture doesn't deal with every theological issue or every right. sanctification issue. So yeah, uh, I don't think we would call somebody up for being obese in front of the church. That's the difficulty. Is I mean, there are very clear steps bring, you know, one person and two in the whole church here. And I'm just wondering if that, if those steps for reconciliation um, apply to sins that don't affect a specific person. Um, I don't know how to answer that exactly. Because I don't want to sound like any sin is okay as long as it doesn't affect anybody else. Because I don't think there are any sins like that. And like I said, we wouldn't probably call somebody in front of the church for being obese. But we would say, hey, you know what? It's probably best if you take care of yourself. You know, if life, breath, and all things come from God. What is your idol? I guess it could be a good way to approach it. Right, right. So there are other ways to do that, but... uh, Jesus is specifically speaking about uh, in church life and how do we not despise the little ones? How do we not cause each other to stumble? And so all those things need to be taken into account. And if someone does sin against you, how do you deal with that? And so that's specifically what he's dealing with in this situation. Um, yeah, but I don't want to sound like if it's a different kind of sin, it's okay. We don't have to address it because we do. Because Jesus did just talked about a lot of different kind of we, ways we that sin. That. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay. Any matter at all in verse nineteen. 
Uh, again, I say to you that if two of you agree, now on one commentary, um, Jesus is changing, or he's not changing. The scripture says uh, in the Greek, it says, again, I say to you, just to reinforce what he's already been talking about. Uh, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Well, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on the earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. There's one commentary I read that said that this was not related to the context, that it harkens back to Matthew chapter 7, and it's basically just asking for whatever you will in Jesus' name. <clears throat> uh, but then there's another one that I read that said it is related, um, and it's in the context, and it all makes sense. So I'll just go ahead and tell you what I think. <clears throat> This is related to all the stuff we've been talking about. Jesus is reinforcing, not just in discipline matters, as a church that you're functioning, but also in all things. If you are spirit-led and you come together in wise counsel as you talked about praying, and it's consistent with what God has already decreed, uh, go with it. And then he says in verse 20, For two or three have gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst. Um, it's because the reason I think it's all related and consistent, and it's not just randomly asking. If two or three just pray about this and ask for it, you'll get it. Yeah. We agree with you. Yeah. That's not what it's talking about. Um, we come in agreement, and we're going to heal this whatever. Yeah. Well, what if it doesn't get healed? You failed. Um, this is talking about church discipline, but also in all things related to church life and, and leading the church and, and, and things like that. Um, because And Peter took it that way, too. We're not going to get there today, but in verse 21... Peter doesn't say, well, hey, Lord, how can I get a new car or whatever, <laughs> something random. Peter is still fixed on forgiveness of sin. In verse 21, how many times shall I forgive my brother? Peter doesn't go off the rails and ask about something random. Like it's all the same conversation about forgiveness and sin and things like that. Um, the other reason I believe it's all consistent is because uh, Jesus makes the reference to three again. Remember in the Deuteronomy passage, uh, two or three witnesses? And then Jesus says, where two of you are gathered, I am there in the midst. So that's three. And so Jesus is saying his church will function like that. Um, it's confirmed by the church. Is that talking about kind of like uh, where two or three are gathered, there my justice is also, basically. Like what you guys are agreeing upon for the discipline of the church, my justice kind of is confirmed by that. Sanctioned by God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not just, oh, I'm with you as a presence, but hey, so is my justice, so is my discipline, so is your kind of right train of thought. Yeah. Is that more of that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's more we could say about that, and we're late. i got to go. But anyway, summary is church life is and should be different than how the world lives. Um, all the things that Jesus is explaining here is completely foreign to how the world does it. This is not how the world does it. Mark. I think it's Mark 10.42, but I could be wrong. I think it's Matthew 10.42, Mark 3. Calling them to himself, Jesus said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Um, so basically, Jesus is explaining this upside-down kingdom. It's not going to work the way the secular world does it. The kingdom of God is different. Um, so that's the takeaway with this. Sorry for it went so